You're listening to audio from the Village Church, a community that's formed by the gospel and sent on God's mission, gathering weekly in the heart of downtown Hamilton, Ohio. For more information about the village or to connect with us, you can find us online at myvillagechurch.com. Uh, good morning. My name is Scott. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here of the village, and it's a privilege to get to be with you here today. This is my first Sunday in person back, so it's awesome to see people uh, here face-to-face. It's really good to see you guys. Um, before we begin, would you just pray uh, with me? God, we thank you for uh, this morning. Uh, I thank you today to be able to be here gathered with, uh, with some of our saints, and, um, and we're just really grateful that we get to, to begin a new series looking at who you are, looking at all the ways that you are uh, you are unlike us and unlike anything or anyone else, um, that you stand alone, that you're unique, you're holy, you're set apart. Uh, and God, I pray today that as we uh, just take a look at this passage in Jeremiah, as we take a look at what it means for you to be infinite and limitless, uh, God, that we would uh, just humble ourselves in joy and in gratitude, uh, the fact that, that you, you get to be our dad. You get to be our king and you get to be our God. And so I just ask that you would soften my heart and soften the hearts of the people here today um, who are listening to this, uh, that they might have their, their hearts softened to just be able to receive the love and the goodness that, that you have for us and that you are to us as a fountain of living water uh, in, a, in a wilderness of the fallen world that we live in. Um, we love you. Thanks so much. Pray for your help this morning. Pray for the spirit uh, that's around us and in us today. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Uh, so recently, uh, my family and I, we went on uh, a, a little bit of a vacation, and so when uh, we were planning, uh, it was like a couple of days before we left, my wife uh, asked me, Kelly, she was like, um, hey, just what's something that I need to be aware of before we go on vacation? Just like speak to me, tell me something that maybe I'm not thinking about that I need to be thinking about. So I was like, hey, just expectations, right? Like, like she gets really hyped up. She gets excited about things, like looking forward to things. And then when the thing comes, and it's like, oh, that's a thing. And sometimes she gets like bummed out by stuff because it, it's not this big hyped up thing that she has in her head. So I was like, hey, just expectations. You know what I mean? Like the kids are going to grumble. The kids are going to complain. That, that stuff's going to happen. Things are going to come up that we're not expecting. Just expectations. I was like, well, what about me? Like, what do you think I need to be mindful of? And she was like, the budget. You mean mindful of the budget. Um, and she literally gave me this name that there is like a vacation Scott that comes out on vacation that, that just wants to be able to do whatever and not think about money stuff. And it doesn't look crazy to me. It's just like I want to be able to order the large instead of the medium, right, and not, not think about it. It's not anything crazy, but like that's just, I get into this, this mode. I planned to a trip for us to Chicago. I think it was our first anniversary, and, and this was the, I'm pretty sure the only trip that, that I, I planned afterwards, because we paid for that weekend trip for about like a year and a half afterwards on the credit card. So uh, Vacation Scott, uh, not super helpful. I, I have to learn, Vacation Scott has to learn that, that I have limits, right? Even though I don't want to believe that I do, even if I hate that I have to have limits, and even more importantly, I have to learn to accept those limitations, my, my limitations, and live within them. And if I don't, Vacation Scott can send us careening into debt over just a, a few days of fun uh, that snowballs into then not being able to do or pay for or make possible other things for me or for the family down the road. Vacation Scott is dangerous. Uh, he's a dangerous man. It, it's a dangerous thing to live as if we don't have 
limits. On the daily, some of us are afraid to live as if we have limits. Uh, so we pretend that we don't. We, we don't look at a budget, right? And so the, but we're anxious about money. We refuse to use a calendar, but we're stressed and too busy with stuff. We, we don't get enough sleep. We get sick. We fall asleep. Uh, hopefully not on Sunday mornings, but I know sometimes some of you do. Um, but we don't eat well, right? We, we don't have like that much energy and, and health is not that great. Uh, we don't take care of our bodies. We don't separate ourselves from work uh, as we ought. We don't have healthy boundaries in relationships. Sometimes we, we live like we don't have limits. Or we know that we have limits and we absolutely hate it because we're afraid that we're going to miss out on something. We're going to squander uh, what little time that we have. So our life is all about maximizing every waking second of the day. And we're overly concerned about the budget, overly concerned about our schedule uh, and our regimen. We're overly concerned about everything that we eat and, uh, and all that we do that we might produce more, that we might age uh, more slowly, that we might mitigate every health risk that we possibly can so we can wring the ever-loving life out of every 24-hour period of our life. Because if we don't, man, what does that say about us? And what I want to say to all of us in both cases is that when we do that, uh, we're, we're truly living out of fear. And, and all of us feels this at some level. We all experience this sort of fear, either in one aspect or the other, maybe in, in just little uh, aspects of our lives or blanketing over our entire life. And this fear of our own limitations is a dangerous thing when it makes us forget about our God who is limitless. And this is what we're going to talk about today, and, and what we uh, talk about today is going to tee up the next several weeks as we kick off this new series called uh, He Is. Like uh, Pastor Michael said earlier, we ended 2019 with a series called He Is, We Are, where we looked at the communicable attributes of God. Uh, that's a fancy way of referring to um, the things about God that we have in common with him, attributes that he communicates to us and in us and through us uh, when he made us like him in his image. And today, we're kicking off a, a companion series to that one simply titled, He is Looking at the Incommunicable Attributes of God. In other words, the things about God that we do not have in common with him at all. Things that he doesn't communicate to us, uh, in us, or through us in our human nature and that are unique to him and him alone. And on the outset, uh, you might think that sounds incredibly heady, right? That that's like maybe pie in the sky, not very pragmatic, not uh, practical, and exercise and just like flexing theological muscles, right? Um, but, but it doesn't actually help you at all in your day-to-day -day life. But, but nothing could be further from the truth. Uh, Ryan, do you have that mouse picture up there? So this is a picture of a stuffed mouse uh, sitting in my house up against the wall on a timeout square, uh, or rather, circle. I need to learn my shapes. Uh, I, I came home from work one day and discovered this, uh, or maybe it was an evening. I don't remember exactly when we came home in the evening sometime, and, and I saw this mouse just sitting where usually uh, we would have our kids go to, to timeout. Later, uh, find out that Mabel, who's nine now, but she was like, one, one and a half at that point. Uh, I was like, hey, what's going on with Dickens? That's the name of the mouse, Dickens. Uh, like, w like, why is he there? Well, Mabel had put Dickens in timeout. 
for what? I have no idea. I'm not sure what he did. I don't know how he misbehaved, but he, he received a consequence just like we give our kids consequences when they step out of line. Dickens did something wrong, right? And so Dickens got a timeout probably for several hours. He's probably there for a very long time. So I don't know what he did. I probably don't want to know what he did. But, but that is an example of a communicable attribute from a parent to a kid, right? Uh, uh, Mabel was imaging us, Kelly uh, and I, doing what we do as, as parents, a kid, and she's, she's doing that. She's doing that with the stuff that she has been entrusted with, right? In this case, her, her stuffed mouse, and that's an okay, good thing to do, right? Uh, this is different when our kids start disciplining each other and, and giving each other timeouts. We have five kids, all right? And so this, this happens on a somewhat regular basis when they start uh man like speaking authoritatively over each other threatening each other with discipline and all those sorts of things you're trying to put someone uh in the, the timeout circle this is not them displaying uh our communicable attributes that we have and share with them as parents so uh, we have not charged them with parenting each other this is them assuming our incommunicable attributes as Parents, they're pretending to be the parents, to have the authority and responsibility of a parent without actually being one. And that never goes well, right? Uh, their intentions aren't always bad. Sometimes they're just trying to rectify the wrongs that they see happening uh, amongst their siblings. Uh, they're trying to step in when someone's out of line. That's it's a good intention, right? Uh, but sometimes their intentions aren't, right, so good or whatever. Um, but, but, man, we get to speak to, to both of those things. And in both instances, despite their intentions, they've forgotten who they are. And they've forgotten who we, their mom and dad, really are. Or that we even exist sometimes in those moments. Uh, they stop relating to us as sons and daughters, and they pretend that they themselves are the parents, which, which hurts our relationship with them. They, they stop relating to one another as brothers and sisters, so they hurt their relationship with one another. And ultimately, uh, they're believing something about who they're supposed to be or what they're supposed to do in that moment that doesn't match reality that doesn't serve them, that doesn't profit them at all in the long run. And so every time that happens, uh, Kel and I, we, we, we kneel down and say, hey, like, dude, not, not only are you not the parent in this situation, but, but you don't have to be the parent in this situation. Let mommy and daddy be mommy and daddy. Like, let us be the parents. You, you just get to be the kids. You get to be the son. You get to be the daughter. You guys get to be siblings. You get to be a brother. You get to be a sister. You don't have to be mom and dad and here let us step in and take care of those things we want our kids to know that that while they have limits uh, themselves and in their relationships that those limits are on purpose right and and therefore they're good there's someone over them with the responsibility and the capacity to handle the things they're not supposed to handle Right, to step into the things that they're not supposed to always step into, that there's freedom and rest and protection, even wonder and joy sometimes found in embracing their limits and trusting that their parents are their parents. Even though uh, we aren't limitless, we aren't quite as limited as they are. And so it is with us and our relationship with our Heavenly Father. As we look at the, uh, at the incommunicable attributes of God over these next several weeks, it would be a good enough work for us to simply stand back and, and behold the uniqueness of God as someone who is fundamentally different from you and from me. 
that we might worship and praise him all the more because of that. That would be a, a good enough work. That would be worthwhile. But my hope is that by beholding God in such a way that we might also shed any unhealthy fear that we have of seeing ourselves for all that we are and for all that we aren't, for all that we might not someday turn out to be, for all that we may not be able to do, not just accepting our limitations, but embracing them, loving them, not letting them cause us to forget that we have a a limitless God who is on our side, but rather letting them drive us to find our rest in him. Under a limitless God who has made us this way, different from him, on purpose, for our good. He has the responsibility and the capacity to handle all the things that, that, that we want to handle, but that we shouldn't handle. All the things that we want to step into, but we can't. All the wrongs we want to right, but never actually could. My hope over the coming weeks is that we might learn to have a healthy fear of the Lord that actually lets us forget to be afraid of our own God-given limitations and lead us to a greater sense of freedom and rest and protection, joy, wonder in the God who is distinct from us, who is incomprehensible, self-existent, self-sufficient, eternal, immutable, omnipresent, omniscient, omnipotent, sovereign, all the things we're going to talk about over the coming weeks so that we might let God be the parent. And so we might just get to be the kids and enjoy being sons and daughters and brothers and sisters as he designed us to be. So in this series, we'll get to know God better by learning more about what he's like. And we'll also get to to know ourselves better by learning more about about what we're not like. And we're going to begin today uh, with something that lies at the heart of of all of those things by talking about the infinite nature of God. So we're going to talk about first what it means for God to be a God of no limits. And then uh, fear of, uh, of the God with no limits makes us forget the fear of our own. And then thirdly, that we live in fear of our own limits when we forget the God who has none. Those are our three points today. We'll walk through those slowly uh, together. So first point, God is a God of no limits. There's a, a predicament for all of us as we're, we're preaching this series, and that is how do you preach about something that none of us can actually fully comprehend, right? Literally next week, the, the attribute is incomprehensible. So I'm not sure how you preach to help comprehend something that is incomprehensible. I, I don't know how we do that. But, but that's a challenge that we all have over the coming weeks. So how do we go about trying to actually wrap our heads around some things that we can't actually fully get ourselves? Well, we have two tour guides uh, through this series. We have something called general revelation and special revelation. In other words, uh, uh, what, what everyone can plainly see That's general revelation and what uh, we can only know if God goes out of his way to tell us himself. That is special revelation. If you think about a concert, right? Think about a concert. Uh, uh, Everyone who's at the concert has some shared experience, right? They they hear the same music. They're in the same venue. They're watching the same performance, right? This is sort of general revelation. Everyone is aware of some of the same things. But then some people have VIP tickets, right? Uh, They get to go backstage and learn behind the scenes stuff, maybe actually meet the band, see how things work, right? Uh, And so that is uh, more like special revelation. Someone has to let you into that. You have to have special access to that. But these two layers of revelation are all part of, of the one experience, the one concert, right, that everyone is a part of whether or not everyone, everyone gets to go backstage. 
And such is the case for life. There are things that all of us in our human experience we're aware of. And then there's other stuff, uh, the behind the scenes, the backstage stuff that we might not all know about uh, this life if we don't have special access to it in some way. And so here's what Romans 1, uh, 19 through 20 says. Uh, Paul writes, what can be known about God is plain to them and to us because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. In other words, the very existence of creation, let alone its, its order, its function, the perceived meaning and purpose that we have and a sense of right and wrong uh, and other experiences that we have as humans, all of this is all evidence uh, that we need to know that there is someone with invisible attributes who is not like us, who isn't limited in the ways that we are. Let's notice something real quick that, that Paul uh, here, he's not saying that, that what they didn't understand about creation was evidence for a kind of infinite God. He's saying that the existence of creation itself, whether they understood it all or not, whether they understood it in scientifically accurate ways uh, or not, was evidence for God. Ancient Near East peoples, they looked up at, uh, at the stars, believing they were lights that had been hung in the heavens. And they were in awe, knowing that, that someone or something had to do that. We look at the stars, knowing they're giant balls of helium and hydrogen uh, that are like held together by their own gravity and, and perpetually experiencing like nuclear fusion, uh, giving off photons and heat and all sorts of other things. And, and we on cloudless nights can be in that same kind of awe. Who, who did this, right? It wasn't us. The, the Israelites couldn't reach high enough to hang those lights in the sky, nor, nor could we capture and contain that much plasma, right, let alone be remotely close enough uh, to it when it starts to, to burn to make anything that resembles even the smallest star. Planetariums, telescopes, the glow-in-the-dark uh, star stickers that my kids have uh, in, their, in their room, uh, those little projectors that you get when you turn on the light and that they kind of cast the constellations all over the walls and stuff, man, that's as close as we can get in our own limitations to recreating the night sky. And, and guys, that's just stars. That's just the stars. There are a million other things that have been made in which we clearly perceive God's eternal power and divine nature, even though they are invisible attributes. The, the complexity of the human body, the fine-tuning of the universe to support life, childbirth, so on and so forth. God's limitlessness is on display in the limited things of the world. And yet he's not limited by the things of this world. He created the laws of nature, but he's not bound by them. He uses the stuff of the world, but he's not limited by what does or doesn't exist. He decides what exists. This kind of general revelation points us to an infinite God who is supernatural. He is beyond the laws of nature. That's one way to describe what it means for, be, uh, for God to be a God of, of no limits. He is supernatural. Now, general revelation uh, lets us know that there's a God who has uh, made all that's been made. Then special revelation gives that God a name and tells us a little bit more about him and all the wonders that he's done, largely because this God is the one who is revealing himself. He's the one doing the revelation. Uh, we have the VIP tickets uh, in some sense, right? Uh, we have the scriptures, 
which are inspired, are our rule uh, of faith. We have Jesus, who was God himself in the flesh. We have the Holy Spirit, who regenerates our hearts and, and dwells within those who trust in Jesus. He illuminates truth for us. He bears fruit in our life to reveal his nature. He gifts us in special ways. All of these things testify uh, to who God is, particularly in and through the special relationship that he has with his people. He walked in the cool of the day with, with Adam and Eve, right? He loves to dwell and be with his people. He, he made covenants with Noah and Abraham and countless others. He is a faithful and gracious God. Uh, if you were with us during our, our Exodus series earlier this year, then you know that, that God appeared to Moses in a burning bush, right? And he told Moses his name, Yahweh, that the I am who I am. Who is God? Like, he, he just is. He's not the God from, from this place or that place. He's not a God that was formed at creation or formed by other gods uh, fighting or clashing in some way. He's simply the God who is. In Exodus, we also saw God free his people from their slavery to the Egyptians by showing that he is over and above all of the Egyptian gods. Not only did he overpower the sorcery of Pharaoh's magicians and overpower the will of Pharaoh, the, the king of Egypt, but every one of the ten plagues that he sent on the Egyptians overpowered one of their gods, the, the god of the Nile, the god of frogs, right? The, the fill in the blank, the, the god of everything, uh, all so that they would know that Yahweh was not simply a god, but the Lord. And later in Exodus, and we'll get there next year, uh, we see God pass in front of Moses while Moses is kind of hidden in this little cleft of a rock. And as God passes by Moses, he sees his backside, and, and God tells Moses about himself. This is Exodus 34, 6 through 8. He says, The Lord, the Lord, uh, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness and rebellion and sin, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and the children for their sins of the parents, the third and fourth generation. This was a God who was not only outside the limits of time, spanning generations or beyond human limits, right? Maintaining love to thousands, right? Like, I know not all of you even know everybody that's on your friends list on Facebook, right? Or who you follow on Twitter. Like, but he maintains love and relationship with thousands of people. This was a God who was different from all the other gods, both in his character, his gracious, just, merciful character, and in his capacity to be infinitely gracious, just, and merciful. Uh, my kids, somewhere along the line, like, created this habit of, like, putting their hands in my pockets to, like, look for stuff. Like, I don't know at what point I had fun things in there for them to get it, but, like, they just, one of them did the other day, just a couple days ago, reaching, like, looking for candy or something. I have no, usually they just put garbage in my pockets. Like, I've I've come to work one day, and I remember, like, reaching in, and I had a, a dried piece of pancake in my pocket one day. Like, I don't know what they're thinking they're going to find at any point in time. Uh, they usually put stuff in it. But, but we have this friend, uh, family friend, Nan. Uh, whenever they see her, they know to ask her for mints, right, because she always has mints. And usually if she knows that she's going to see them, like, she will always have mints on her to make sure that she has mints to give uh, our kids. It's the sweetest thing. Uh, she always has them in her pockets. God, God is like that. 
What we're never wrong to think that God has enough of whatever it is that we need, whatever it is that our heart is really longing for. We may not always have a very accurate assessment of what it is that we do need, right? That's a, an entirely different sermon, but we'll never approach the Lord and find him with empty pockets. He not only has impeachable character and, and the purest of intentions towards his kids, but he's the only one able to see those good intentions through to make good on his promises, to provide everything that we need and more. He never runs out of resources. He never hits the ceiling. He never hits rock bottom. He never comes to the end of himself. He never runs out of stuff or out of himself. He has deep pockets, pockets filled with grace and with mercy and justice and generosity, pockets that, that don't end. In a supernatural world, especially one in which there are so many spiritual beings and many kinds of spiritual beings, both good and evil. We should want to know the one true creator, God, who he is. And fortunately for us, that God wants to make himself known to us, but he also wants to set himself apart from every other God, every other spiritual thing that exists, because he is set apart from them. He's not merely supernatural. Uh, angels, demons, cherubim, seraphim, uh, Satan, all the things that we read about in the scriptures, they're supernatural too. But he is super supernatural. He is the God of gods. He is the Lord of lords. He is the King of kings. He is the great I am. He lays claim to a limitlessness that no other creature, human or divine, can honestly declare. God alone is infinite. Not only does he supersede science, but he surpasses every other living thing. He's not just supernatural, but he is supreme. Special Revelation tells us of an infinite God who is supreme. He is limitless, unhindered, and unencumbered, unlike any other. This is another way of describing God as a God of no limits. So what? So what? What difference does that make to us, to those of us who are limited, who aren't infinite? Well, it means that, that when we fear this God, the God who is limitless, we'll forget to be afraid of our own limitations. And that's what we're going to explore in the next point. Point number two is this, that, that the fear of the God with no limits makes us forget the fear of our own. Fear of the God with no limits makes us forget the fear of our own. We'll get to our focal passage here in just a couple minutes. Uh, we are literally born into our limitations, right? We're born into our limitations. From the womb, we are dependent on someone else to, to give us what we need to survive. We're unable to take care of ourselves, feed ourselves, change ourselves, clothe ourselves, uh, bathe ourselves. We wholly rely on our caretakers, as we get a little older, we run into new limitations on what we can do, right? There are rules. Adults get to have all the fun. They get to stay out late. Uh, they get to go out with friends without a curfew, eat ice cream for breakfast if they want to, right? Adults get to have all the fun, and then we become adults and realize that we're limited by, by money. We only have so much uh, of it. There are bills to pay. We're limited by time. Right, there's only so much of that when we're working, uh, going to school, or participating in community and, and church life and all of those things. There's dishes and laundry and cleaning and yard work and groceries, all this stuff to do. We're limited in our relationships, right? We, we learn that it actually takes work and it's hard to invest in friendships, right? That, that, that can be a really difficult thing. And as we continue to get older, we're limited more and more by our bodies. They get sore. 
They get sick. They get tired. They don't bounce back like they used to. They're not energetic and spry, uh, efficient or effective like they used to be. Right now, we're all experiencing all different sorts of limitations, new things. You're all staring at me from behind masks, or you have to watch me from uh, behind a screen. Uh, seats are spaced out in the limited. We don't have Kville back there right now. We've been limited in where we can go, uh, and when we can go there, and, and what we have to wear and do, and who can be uh, around us, and how many people can be around us, and all that stuff. Our, our social interactions, our errands, jobs, livelihoods, all those things have had like a, a cap put on it. They've been limited or hindered in some way. Coming off of Micah, the series that we were just in, uh, conversations about justice, we're very aware of how limited we in and of ourselves are and our ability to, to right every wrong that we see. And, and we're certainly limited in getting to the root of injustice and unrighteousness, which is the, the sin that lies in the heart uh, of all of us. And at some point, I mean, the, the greatest limitation of all is simply on life itself. Our days are numbered. Just as God made us from the dust to the dust, we will return. If we perceive the invisible attributes of God's infinite nature through creation, then, then we perceive our finite nature through just everyday human experience. This is the general revelation of our nature, that we are one of the things that God has made, which makes us evidence of God's limitlessness, and yet we're also one of the things that can be unmade, which makes our lives evidence of our own limitation. Our pockets are not infinitely deep. We do run out of resources. We do hit the ceiling. We do hit rock bottom sometimes. We do come to the end of ourselves. Now, all of that sounds incredibly depressing, right? Your, your blood pressure, maybe that makes some of you guys, uh, your blood pressure rise a little bit. This is some of the stuff that, that stirs up, that spurs the fears that I talked about at the beginning. But the funny thing is that there's a part of us that likes to be reminded of how small we really are. To behold something much bigger than ourselves, maybe is a, a better way to put it. Put it. Uh, Kelly, my wife, she, whenever we go to the beach, she loves the beach. Our kids could just live at the pool. But she loves the beach. Get up early, go, try to find a good spot. She just loves to look at, at the horizon, at seeing just an endless amount of water and in some ways nothingness at the same time just out in front of her. She'd get up early and go out there to grab the best seat. I took a picture last year. We were on the beach of her. She got up early, and it's like from our room, and she's just this little speck uh, on the beach kind of all by herself, and there's just endless ocean in front of her. That's one of her favorite pictures uh, that, that we have. There's a reason people travel for hours and get up early in the morning to, to snag the best seat on the beach so they can look out on an endless horizon. There's a, a reason people take pictures of themselves next to, to redwood trees that tower over them or from the summit of some mountain that they've just climbed. There's a reason why people love to visit uh, the surviving structures, ancient uh, ruins from old civilizations long gone, Stonehenge and uh, the pyramids and the Colosseum and and all these things, we love that stuff, not because they make us feel uh, unmovable or untouchable. They, they don't, right? They, they actually do the opposite. We, we love that stuff because they remind us that even though we aren't unmovable, even though we aren't untouchable, there might be, there must be, has to be something else or someone else who is. And maybe by getting close enough to those things that seem larger than life, that seem unending or impervious to time, some of it might rub off on us. Maybe we'll get to enjoy the benefits of its limitlessness, even though we are limited. 
John Piper uh, has a quote. He says that no one goes to the Grand Canyon to feel big. Folks, this isn't a fluke. It's not, it's not a quirk of humanity. It's not a glitch in the matrix. This is where God's special revelation illuminates a, a, a universal human longing. The scriptures tell us this. It's not an accident that you have limitations. It's not a mistake. You and I are, are limited by design. We were made mortal. We were made to sleep. We were made to eat and to drink. Your hunger and thirst aren't problems. When you need a break, there's, there's not something wrong with you. When you go to bed uh, with more work to do tomorrow, that the same work maybe that you did today even, man, that's not a shortcoming or a failure. You were made to be small and to be small in the presence of an infinitely great God who was pleased to be the parent and let you be the kid, to, to put you to bed at night and watch over you while you sleep. To, to tell you when your workday is over. To tell you when it's time to eat. To tell you what to eat, right? And if you're familiar with the Garden of Eden, to tell you what not to eat as well, right? Open up Genesis 1 and 2 sometime uh, this week. Take, take note that God, when he made humanity and called Adam and Eve, our first human representatives to himself, he made them mortal. So he gave them the tree of life that they might live forever. He made them uh, to need food and water, so he gave them every fruit-bearing plant to eat. He gave them rivers to draw water from. They needed rest, so he, he gave them the evening to sleep in one designated day uh, every single week to, to put down the work and enjoy what they've labored hard at. Their job was to work and keep a garden, to subdue the earth, to be fruitful and multiply in it, a, a commission that would take far more than a lifetime as we know it to complete. And yet he had them measure time by days morning and evening, and they would always end each one with more to do. But he never demanded that they be more than who he made them to be or to do more than what he made them to do. He made them on purpose limited. And in his limitlessness, he provided for their every need. It was, it was in getting close to God, being in his presence, not in the presence of, of mountains or oceans or redwoods or ancient ruins, not in thrills uh, or the new uh, next thing or in chasing some larger-than-life dream, uh, but in the presence of God himself where their limitations, their lack, their mortality couldn't even begin to stir up fear in them. The nearness of the Lord was their good because in his presence there was provision. But that was the garden. You might say, Adam and Eve were, were deceived. They, they sinned. They got kicked out. And, and so did we. We're not there anymore. So what about now when, when we're not in paradise? We're not walking in the cool of the day with the Lord. When we live in a fallen world where, where sin dwells inside of us and evil and suffering are part of our, our human experience. This is where we come to today's focal passage. Jeremiah 2, 1 through 13. We're going to look at the first three verses first. So while you're turning there, while it's coming up on the screen... Man, Jeremiah is speaking to God's people who were themselves kicked out of their promised land because of their sin. If you're with us in Micah, then you kind of have some context for what is going on in that. But, but this is what Jeremiah is saying to God's people. This is Jeremiah 2, 1 through 3. He says, The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord, I remember the devotion of your youth. Your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness, in a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, 
the first fruits of his harvest. All who wait incurred guilt. Disaster came upon them, declares the Lord. God is, is lovingly remembering uh, an earlier time in his covenant relationship, his, his marriage with his people. Uh, Kelly and I, our first year of, of marriage, we lived in this like dinky little apartment. Our neighbors were uh, something else. Uh, we, we fought. Uh, we, we, we had jobs that we both hated. It wasn't that great. But when we think about our first year of marriage, we talk about staying up all night, watching uh, Seasons of Lost on online, our little laptop computer that was like this big. And that was a new thing to watch stuff streaming on the internet. We talk about Friday night date nights that we had. Uh, I think about the, the Waffle House and the UDF that we, I could walk to. And so on Saturday mornings, I'd walk to UDF, get a newspaper, and sit in uh, Waffle House and eat a whole bunch of greasy food by myself every Saturday. That was my routine on Saturday mornings. That's the stuff that we think about, all the good things. Those of you who are with us in Exodus know that God's people grumbled and they complained. Uh, They were idolatrous when God led them into the wilderness out of Egypt. And that's the time that God's referring to here. It wasn't this cheery, lovey-dovey sort of uh, relationship for God or for them. God, God had freed them from slavery, but he had also led them into this untamed wilderness. Right, a place uh, not meant for thousands of people to, to live in for very long. The, the land wasn't sown, which means there weren't, uh, there weren't grocery stores, right? They weren't walking through fields of fruit and vegetables. There was nothing to eat. Uh, they were sitting ducks. They had no standing army as a way to defend themselves as they wandered around the wilderness. They were without all the things they needed to survive, and yet they followed the Lord anyway. And it's this love and devotion, in spite of, of their circumstances, and in spite of their grumbling, that the Lord is fondly remembering. What's that all about? What would drive them to do that? That there's a there's a kind of fear that isn't blind to the things that threaten you, nor does it make you wear blinders so those are the only things you can see. There's a kind of fear that doesn't sweep your limitations under the rug, nor does it make them consume every waking moment of your life, every thought, every conversation, every decision. All of that is an unhealthy fear of God's original design that you are limited. And you'll be confronted by your limitations, especially in a world where everything else is limited to and where everyone else is being confronted with exactly the same thing, where sin exists. This is the great toilet paper rush of 2020, right? right? You know, n- nothing on the shelves, right? And, and everyone wants uh, to, to have all, as much as they can in their house. They're selling it by the square on eBay, right? That's what you get in this kind of a world. The kind of fear I'm talking about is a, is a healthy fear of the Lord, N- not a fear that makes you flinch like you do around somebody who's heavy-handed or abusive, who wields authority in a way uh, as a means to hurt you. I, I mean a healthy fear of a God who rightfully has authority over your life, who made you, who knows you, who knows what you need, who has both the the responsibility and capacity for telling you who you are, what you were made for, how you ought to live, holding you accountable to that, and also giving you all that you need in order to flourish. That kind of a fear does not lead to flinching. That leads to following. It leads to faithfulness. That's not a fear that says, how can I get away from you? But rather a fear that says, man, how could I live without you? Because you're my provider. You're my protector. You want what's best for me. And this is what God did for his people. This is who he was to them. He was leading them into the wilderness because he was leading them out of slavery 
into freedom, into rest. When, when they didn't know the way, he led them by cloud and by fire. When the ground was barren, he made quail fall from the sky and bread rise from the ground every single morning. When enemy nations wanted to devour his people, he found their enemies guilty and made disaster come upon them. How could his people live without them? This, this is the fear of the Lord. So for all their floundering, God's people ultimately, uh, sometimes begrudgingly, followed the Lord in the wilderness. Not because it was easy, not because they were blind to the troubles that awaited them, or, or were unaware of just how unprepared they were. Not because they had everything they needed to have, knew everything they needed to know, saw everything they needed to see, or could do everything they needed to do. On the contrary, right, they couldn't sustain themselves, couldn't provide for themselves, they couldn't uh, keep themselves from falling away or from falling apart. But they knew the one who could who did and who would, and that made all the difference. Their fear of him who has no limits helped them forget how afraid they were of their own. Because when you're walking with the Lord, Christ who's reigning over us on his throne, the Father who is watching over you, the Spirit who's, who's living inside of you, when you're walking with the Lord, you shouldn't feel anything but small. We should feel at home in our limitations. And when you look up at your Father, Right? and behold how big he really is. Your fears about your limits should melt away as he towers next to you, taller than the redwoods, more vast than the ocean, the one who hung the stars in the sky. And yet he knows everything about you. He knows what you need. And while we have to hop on a plane or drive for hours or climb thousands of feet to bring ourselves near to some part of creation that might give us a taste of something beyond our own limits, the infinite creator of the universe fought through little blood and sweat and tears on the cross of Christ that he might be near to you. So that all of us might know that in spite of our sin, in spite of our own floundering and our relationship with the Lord, in spite of our rocky history with him, that, that he looks at our relationship with him like his relationship with Israel. He thinks as fondly of us as he does of Jesus. We are loved with a boundless love that we cannot be separated from in Christ. We will put on immortality when we're resurrected like Jesus was. All the little unseen, imperfect, insufficient good works that you guys do uh, in Jesus' name, they won't be burned up. They're not going to be for nothing. They, they, have been, uh, they, they will last into eternity. That, that all the sin and all the stupidity that we've done, that stuff won't last into eternity. They'll be, they'll be burned up. They've been taken away and paid for by the blood of Christ on the cross who took all of our guilt and shame with him to his grave so that we don't have to take those things with us to ours. The mountains may not move towards you, but the infinite already has, and his name is Jesus. But when we forget that, when we forget him, that's when we begin living as if we're walking in the shadow of all that we're not instead of in the presence of all that he is. And this is where the danger lies and why this series is important for us over the coming weeks. And this is my third and final point, that we live in fear of our own limits when we forget the God who has none. We'll finish up our passage here in Jeremiah, starting in uh, verse four. Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, and all the clans of the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, what wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me and went after worthlessness and became worthless. 
They didn't say, where is the Lord who brought us up from the land of Egypt, who led us in the wilderness, in a land of, of deserts and pits, in a land of drought and deep darkness, in a land that none passes through, where no man dwells. And I brought you into a plentiful land to enjoy its fruits and its good things. Just lost my place. Uh, and I brought you into a plentiful land to enjoy its fruits and its good things. But when you came in, you defiled my land and made my heritage an abomination. The priests didn't say, where is the Lord? Those who handled the law didn't know me. The shepherds transgressed against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal and went after things that do not profit. Therefore, I still contend with you, declares the Lord. And with your children's children, I will contend. For cross to the coast of Cyprus and see, or send to Kedar and examine with care. See if there has been such a thing. Has a nation changed its gods, even though they are no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. This might be familiar in your own conversations. Maybe you've seen this happen on TV or movies or whatever where someone's done something wrong. They've hurt someone else on accident. And in explaining themselves, they say, man, I didn't mean to hurt you. I I wasn't thinking about how that would affect you. I wasn't thinking about you. And the other person is like, that's the problem. You weren't thinking about me. You were only thinking about yourself. Like, that's what's going on here. Jeremiah 2 gives us uh, probably my favorite picture of idolatry in all of Scripture. Uh, The anatomy of idolatry comes in two parts. It's a rejection of God, a God who is infinite. He's a fountain of living waters, a a never-ending oasis that's just continually bubbling up and gushing up out of the ground on its own for you to drink from. And so uh, idolatry is, is a rejection of that oasis, that God, to go dig your own cistern, your own hole in the ground that not only isn't a natural spring, but even if you try to pour water into it, wherever you get that from, right, uh, that, that water itself just seeps out and into the ground. It not only can't give you what you want, but it will make you a slave to itself, constantly uh, fetching more water, only to have it leak through the cracks just as quickly. It'll never satisfy you. It'll never serve you. In fact, you will end up serving it. And this metaphor for idolatry seems crazy. Like, who would do that? Who would choose while standing in the wilderness to walk away from from this infinite oasis they could scratch something out of dirt and stone? We would agree, probably with Jeremiah's description, that, that that would be going after worthlessness, after things that don't profit He even says that those who don't have that oasis, who don't worship uh, Yahweh or have any real gods at all, people in Cyprus and and all over, they don't change their gods willy-nilly. They're not so fickle. They they commit to their broken cisterns, gosh darn it, right? But the Israelites, they weren't as faithful to their own fountain. Once they left the wilderness and arrived in their promised land, they changed their glory. As Jeremiah put it, they changed who they were known by. They changed what they hitched themselves to. Or or they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things, as Paul puts it in Romans 1. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. How does that happen? As stark as that sounds, the way we get there is slow 
and subtle. It doesn't start with somebody saying, I reject you, O, o fount of living waters, you. It doesn't start there. It often starts with something that later has to sound like, man, I, I didn't mean to do that. I didn't mean to, to hurt you. I wasn't thinking about you. It started for God's people when they didn't even stop to ask, where is the Lord who brought us up from the land of Egypt? When not even the priests said, where is the Lord? They simply didn't know him. They didn't think about him. I mean, yeah, we, we talked about Baal. We talked about this other God and what he said around the, the dining room table and at the altar and all of these other things. But, but, I mean, who else would we ask? They had forgotten about the Lord. And it's really hard to remember what you already forgot, even if it came with, with pillars of cloud and fire. And this, this morning, this is what should give us pause. And it's uh, what I want us to reflect on as we tee up the series and close out our time together this morning. We often don't know when we've exchanged the real fountain for a fake one. Idolatry doesn't usually have a, a red flashing sign with an arrow that's pointing at us and also pointing at the thing uh, that we are worshiping, at the broken cistern that we're trying to draw water from. We can reject God without lifting up a single word of bitterness against him, without cursing him with our lips, without even a, a resentful thought in our minds. Because idolatry begins when we don't pay him any mind at all, when we forget him. But our limits, our needs, those things are not so easily forgotten. They're always in our face. It's part of our human experience. And when we forget about our Father who's towering over us, right, then we have to ascribe all of his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature that all of us are aware of. We have to ascribe those to someone or something. Those incommunicable attributes have to, have to find a new home and live somewhere. And too often we think they live in here right next to our limitations. And suddenly we think we have to be self-sufficient, right? We shouldn't need any help. We have to be omnipresent. We should be able to, to do all of uh, the things, be everywhere all at the same time, never have to experience FOMO, right? Fear of missing out. We should uh, be omnipotent, be able to pay for everything that we want to, be competent in everything, self-existent. We have to not only prove that we're somebody, we have to, to make something of ourselves, Omniscient, we have to have all the answers and know everything and definitely tell everyone on Facebook, right, what the right answers are. Eternal, we, ha we have to have everything in place for our future, security, and, and do everything we can to keep ourselves from getting older. We don't get to be God's kids, we, we believe. We have to be the divine parent in our own lives and maybe in everybody else's as well. But the problem with thinking that you're supposed to be all those things is that you, you can't be any of those things, any of these things. It requires a, a limitlessness that none of us possess. We dig our own cisterns and realize it ain't holding enough water. And that stokes an unholy fear inside of us, of our own limitations that makes us forget all the more the limitlessness of God. So there's two options. We, we either turn outside of ourselves to, to Dave Ramsey, right? to beach body, to, to diets, to our jobs, our career track, our political parties, maybe uh, rigid schedules and routines and planners and all those things. We turn to what are otherwise maybe good and fine things, and we try to draw water out of them to fill ourselves up, to prove to ourselves that we can do and we can be what we were made to be, what we have to be. And we turn them into functional saviors who promise to atone for our sin of not being enough. 
who can speak a word and set us on the right path toward living your best life now, being a better version of you, meeting demands that you wrongly believe God is making of you. But with that word, they'll simply make you a slave because the water you just drew up from one place today will, will leak out of your cistern by tomorrow. And you'll just have to work that much harder, save that much more, wring yourself out all that much more tighter again the next day. And if we don't turn outside of ourselves, then we turn inward to despair, never wanting to look at a budget, to, to look at our health, to look at our, our work ethic, our future, our schedule, our participation in the church or in community, any of those things, because in the shadow of our limitations, those things have become functional judges over us. We're afraid that as soon as we look at them, we're going to be found wanting. We'll be seen as the empty cisterns that we really are, and with the word, we'll be condemned. This is what... Jeremiah was talking about when he said that when his people went far from the Lord, they went after worthlessness and became worthless. Not because they were worthless. They, you, we, we were all made in God's image, chosen by God to be his people. But, but creation, uh, but because the unworthy gods that, that we make for ourselves can only uh, ever tell us that we're worthless, that those things of creation, man, they're, uh, whether natural or supernatural, they were never meant to be supreme in our lives, to tell us those things. They, they can't tell us who we really are or what we were made for, how we ought to live, let alone move towards us in any way, shape, or form, to know our name, to know our needs, to know our deeds, to love us. Those things will never love us. And they'll never freely give us what we need to freely live in such a way. Just to steward what we've got, to, to work and to keep a garden, or to go and make disciples, to, to make much of God and, and not make something of ourselves. They were never meant to be a fountain of living water in the wilderness of a fallen world, which is what makes living as if we don't have limits uh, or, or aren't supposed to have limits such a, a dangerous thing. It doesn't lead to profit. But to spiritual, and, and if vacation Scott has its way to quite literal bankruptcy, right? But, but like a parent whose kids forgot about their mom and dad, and who forgot that they weren't mom and dad, our Heavenly Father, he kneels down to us and he says, man, not only aren't you the parent in this situation, but you don't have to be. Let me be your father. You get to be my kid. You get to be a son. You get to be a daughter. You get to be a brother and a sister. After God passed by Moses in the rock and declared to Moses who he was, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, it says that Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and he worshiped. And he said, if, if now I've found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it's a, a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. This, guys, this is my prayer for us today and for this series, that this series isn't about your limitless potential. And it's not about God using his limitlessness for every whim and desire, much to vacation Scott dismay. That's not what his limitlessness is for. This series is about a, a limitless God who uses his infinite nature to lead and provide for and protect his finite, fickle, incredibly limited people for his eternal unending purposes. That's a gift. And our job this morning and in the coming weeks is to simply catch a glimpse of all the ways that he does that. And like Moses, to catch a glimpse of, of him, that we might know him and remember him and fear him for all that he is, especially where we've forgotten him. And we get to ask ourselves, ask him to, to help us see those areas today, to help us repent uh, and believe in a limitless grace and a limitless mercy that he has for his people.
fear of the God with no limits makes us forget the fear of our own, even our sin. He is the parent. We get to be the kids. Taken by him as his inheritance forever. Man, what a joy. What a gift. Uh, I'm going to invite the band to come up now if you guys want to. Um, In a moment, uh, we're going to sing a song called A Better Word. And for those of us who might be feeling condemnation this morning, uh, who might be used to hearing words of of functional saviors or functional judges uh, in our head, maybe demanding more of you uh, than than is possible or or, finding you wanting or lacking in some way, shape, or form, I encourage you to simply sit under the words of, of this song as the band, as the church sings these things over you. And just listen, that, that accusations and fear spoken over you today would melt away and that you would believe that you're free from condemnation because the blood of Christ has spoken for you. And if you're already in that place, if you're reveling in the limitless grace and mercy of God for you this morning, then man, I invite you to raise your voices, right? And let yourselves be heard as if you're not singing through masks, all right? Let's sing and worship God this morning. So at this time, I invite you to sing if you want to. I'm going to be back there by that red tree if any, with a mask on. If anyone wants to pray or talk about uh, anything, there'll be some questions. There are questions right now on the screen. Uh, reflect, ask God to just sift your heart um, and, and to, to lead yourself back to a joy and trust and fear, healthy fear of a limitless God.